Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, I'm not much of an aquascaper, at least not in the classic sense. Like, you can give me a piece of wood and some rocks and maybe I'll stumble onto something. However, I'll never be able to crank out those artistic, intricate aquascapes that you see on the gram or elsewhere. Nope, not me. What I tend to do is research the wild habitats of my fishes, figure out what makes them tick, and then try to replicate the function and the form of them in my tanks. And the results are often, I don't know, unorthodox in appearance. Other times, they're a bit more interesting. Occasionally, they're even rather attractive. However, the result was achieved because I attempted to replicate what I saw in the natural habitat, which I'm trying to represent. And usually, it's about the details I see in the habitat. Trying to recreate the details which the fishes seem to be drawn to almost always results in something really interesting and sometimes attractive. There's something enticing, stimulating, and challenging about recreating a literal slice of the bottom, isn't there? Ask yourself why these habitats form, what contributes to the way they look, and how they support aquatic life forms. And that unlocks a tremendous amount of information that you can use in your work. Looking at wild aquatic habitats in this fashion provides tremendous inspiration, especially when you look at the macro view and isolate some of the details, like how wood falls, how substrate and leaves accumulate, and where fishes seem to aggregate, all in context. Despite my aesthetics challenges, I've always taken comfort in the fact that my wood arrangements almost always seem to look better once they're submerged and become part of the whole habitat. In fact, I don't think I've ever owned an aquarium where the woodscape looked amazing before it was submerged. That's just not me. And that's never really bothered me. I don't get all that hung up on creating the perfect wood stack before I fill my tank. I'm far less into the aquascaping in the traditional sense than I am in representing the functional aspects of various natural habitats. I keep saying this over and over and over again because that's a very different orientation. And I think it served me well. As I've mentioned so often, the look of botanical style aquariums, or natural aquariums in general, always seems to come as a result of the function. What typically happens is that, you know, lame wood arrangement that I'll create recruits biofilms. It softens up a bit over time. Perhaps I'll gradually add a few more pieces of wood to it or twigs or whatever, and over time it becomes something far more interesting and far more attractive than originally configured. However, the editing, if you want to call it that, is based upon how the wild habitat that I'm trying to replicate evolves and functions in its own way. In many wild habitats, materials aggregate over time. Now, this is interesting. It opens up the possibility of evolving your aquarium's appearance over time as a result of replicating the function. You ever thought about how clogged with materials some of the natural habitats that we intend to imitate in our tanks actually are? Like, more so than you think. It's kind of interesting to consider, and I've done a little bit of field work over the years, as well as some, you know, internet safaris, you know, where I'm exploring some of the interesting habitats where our fishes come from and I necessarily can't get to. 
And I've frequently been surprised just how much stuff is in the water. What do I mean by that? I mean materials, botanical materials, wood, leaves, roots, all kinds of stuff. And of course, there's a strange disconnect with our hobby interpretation of nature and what's really out there. It makes me think about our aquascapes and how we're seemingly always concerned about having the appropriate amount of negative space, at least from an artistic perspective. I mean, from an aquascaping point of view, I suppose it's quite understandable. And I'd imagine that there's a sort of perception in the hobby that having an aquarium that's not densely packed with materials is somehow more sustainable, healthier, or whatever from a practical management standpoint. Like, it's easier to maintain an aquarium that's more open. Or is it? I mean, sure, you can easily get a siphon hose into a more open tank. You can keep detritus in suspension where it can be removed more easily, if that's your thing, of course, and you know my thoughts on detritus. On the other hand, if you've made that mental shift to accepting a more natural-looking and functioning aquarium, the amount of material that you have in the tank makes little difference. You simply adjust your husbandry practices and your stocking to accommodate the physical configuration of the aquarium, and you go about your business. Educating yourself about the realities of natural habitats, rather than strictly modeling our aquariums after other aquariums, can open you up to numerous examples of how these environments foster tons of life forms successfully. When you take into account the materials that accumulate in smaller streams, igarapes, flooded meadows, and swamps, you know, the habitats we love around here so much, a surprisingly large amount of botanical materials ranging from tree branches and trunks to leaves and stuff like that accumulates and takes up a lot of physical space in the aquatic habitat. Not only do these materials take up water volume and physical space, they serve to direct flow, create hydrodynamic features, etc. And more importantly, they accumulate and sequester nutrients and food sources for the organisms which reside in these habitats. In the aquarium, a larger volume of, say, driftwood and rocks and botanicals will not only impart the off-menton, you know, chemical effects into the water, they'll similar, similarly, you know, channel the flow and create territories and offer areas of visual interest, what we call functional aesthetics. Well-managed aquariums, which are densely packed with wood and botanical materials, can create surprisingly dynamic and ever-evolving displays. Notice that word evolving again. This is perfectly analogous to the seasonal evolutions of underwater landscapes in nature, as waters recede after the rainy season, leaving a more densely packed assemblage of material in a given area. To get a better perspective on this, just look at the rainforest flora in, in tropical regions such as Amazonia or Southeast Asia or even Africa. After all, this is what's left during the dry season and it gives you some idea of the eventual topography of the underwater landscape when the rains return. Rain performs the dual function of diluting organics while transporting more nutrient and more materials across the ecosystem. So what happens in many of the regions in Amazonia, for example, is the evolution of our most compelling environmental niches. The water levels in the rivers rise significantly, often several meters during the rainy season, and the once dry forest floor fills with water from that torrential rain and the overflowing rivers. That's the agapos. The agapos are formed. Flooded forest floors. Yes, I talk about this habitat incessantly. I'm obsessed by it. But it's really fascinating. This formerly terrestrial environment is now transformed, in, transformed into this like earthy, twisted, incredibly rich aquatic habitat which fishes have evolved over eons to live in and utilize for food protection and spawning areas. It's not just the agapo that receive regular deliveries of terrestrial materials. Many bodies of water which meander through jungles and rainforests are constantly being restocked with seeds and branches and 
other botanical materials from the surrounding vegetation, some of which are knocked into the water by weather, wind, animal activity, whatever. Depending on the velocity of the water, its depth, uh, etc., they may aggregate right where they fall, or they may be gradually redistributed downstream by the current. I can't tell you how amazing this type of habitat is to replicate in the aquarium, because it challenges not only our aesthetic taste, but it challenges our skills at managing closed systems and our ability to understand the benefits of having all this stuff present in our tanks. Now look, I'm not telling you that you should fill your tanks to the rim with wood and seed pods and stuff, although that does sound like a pretty cool idea. But I am suggesting that you look into the physical structure of these habitats and consider interesting functionally aesthetic impacts that you can create with more dense scapes. Attempt to understand the function and the benefits to your fishes created by this kind of configuration. Experiment a little bit. We've already touched on some of the more you know, esoteric benefits and, and how they're analogous to some of those found in the natural habitats they attempt to represent. And this is increasingly obvious to everybody who plays with botanical style aquariums. It's not this new thing anymore. Now, one of the immediate downsides most hobbyists who are unfamiliar with our practices and philosophies on aquarium management will jump on is like, hey, more stuff in the water means less water volume. You can't have as many fishes in your tank. Well, absolutely. Sure. On the other hand, lower population densities of fishes could actually serve to create a more visually engaging and fascinating display. Not only will there be the functional environmental benefits as a result of a lower fish population, you'll probably find some aesthetic ones as well. And the ability to study like niche fishes and their habitat preferences is pretty damn interesting if you ask me. And a rather densely packed aquarium isn't exactly a new concept in the aquarium hobby. I remember back in the 1980s through even the early 2000s and the earlier days of the modern reef aquarium craze, we were obsessed with the concept of live rock as a filter media. And the prevailing wisdom was that you needed X amount of rock per gallon of water in a reef tank to function as a biological filter of sorts. And it was quite a bit. I mean, the only way you can get 100 pounds of rock into a 100-gallon tank usually is to create a literal wall of rock. It's something that I railed on personally for years in my writings and, you know, presentations. I thought it was ridiculous, but that's what we did. It looked pretty crazy. However, it defined the aesthetics of the reef aquarium for a generation of hobbyists. And it did work despite some limitations unique to the reef side of the hobby, like flow restrictions and the ability to access corals and stuff like that. So yeah, I'd be a bit hip, you know, hypocritical if I was suggesting a wall of botanicals. However, I think it would be interesting to play with higher densities of wood and botanicals in some displays, if that's what they, if that's the environment that they're representing. Now, to encourage areas of interest, and yeah, create areas that are detailed, which encourage the observer to really study the aquarium in a more focused way. Nature offers the model. In nature, all of the botanical materials, the fallen leaves, the branches, the seed pods, and all that stuff creates the biological operating system for the aquarium environment. The soils dissolve their chemical constituents, tannins and humic acids, stuff like that gets into the water, enriching it for growth of fungi and microorganisms, which begin to multiply, feed on, and break down the materials. Biofilms form, crustaceans reproduce. Fishes are able to find new food sources, new hiding spaces, new areas to spawn. Life just flourishes in these types of habitats. Fishes and other aquatic organisms are able to make use of all of the physical materials deposited into their environments. It just works. Well, let's just get back to the practical again, you know, vis-a-vis our, -vis our aquariums. There's some keys to maintaining an aquarium filled with botanicals like decomposing leaves and stuff. We know this by now. It's become part of our best practices. 
you definitely need to do regular maintenance. You don't want to overstock. I mean, common sense stuff. We know this. Aquarium Keeping 101. However, in a tank filled with considerable organic material, slight overstocking and poor general husbandry can be problematic. It's about husbandry and perspective. And it's about accepting the fact that the leaves and the other natural materials are part of the ecology of the tank and that they'll behave as terrestrial materials do when they're submerged. They'll break down and decompose. They'll form the basis of this complex food chain, which includes bacterial biofilms, fungi, and little crustaceans. Each one of these life forms supporting, to some extent, those above it, including, ultimately, our fishes. When you think about botanical materials not so much as hardscape props, but as dynamic biological components of a closed microcosm, it all makes more sense. And the more material that's present in the system, the greater the fuel available for microbial growth to power the system. And when we add, remove, supplement more leaves and botanicals and allow them to fully break down in our tanks, we're perfectly replicating the natural processes which occur in streams and rivers around the world when stuff gets distributed. I mean, think about it. Materials which accumulate in natural aquatic habitats and how they actually end up in them makes perfect sense. Uh, gives you a sort of a more holistic context that can make your experience much more rewarding. Botanicals should be viewed as consumables in our hobby, much like activated carbon or filter pads, etc. They don't last indefinitely. We talked about this a million times. We talked about it just yesterday, in fact. And the biofilms and the algal growths which appear on our leaves and botanicals, just as they do in the wild, provide not only a degree of biological functionality for our systems, but an evolving aesthetic as well. So there's your aesthetic. Embrace these things. Don't fear them. Understand that the real designer of our botanical-style aquascapes is Mother Nature herself. We just sort of set the stage. So yeah, set the stage and enjoy the random, compelling, and ever-evolving work of art that's the Blackwater or Botanical-style aquarium, started by you. Evolve with the steady hand of nature. Sounds dramatic, but it's true. Look, I adore minimalist stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. However, I think it'd be interesting and entirely authentic to nature to just play with more complex, heavy-handed scapes once in a while, not just for their interesting aesthetics, mind you. Where it gets really interesting is in a larger aquarium with a population of smaller fishes dwelling in this type of scape. For example, imagine the lack, uh, the, the not the lack, but imagine the allure of a tank heavily choked with thin wood branches, some larger wood, you know, pods, bark, pieces of, you know, different types of botanicals. By selecting small fishes like tetras, apistos, bararas, guarmis, badass corridors, etc., stuff like that, you can maximize the impact by having a fairly high number of fishes in an aquascape that offers a lot less open area. And that sort of encourages these fishes to engage in more natural behaviors, like swimming through them, foraging among the dense wood and botanical areas, hiding, spawning, interacting. If you stock with fishes like elacocarax, the darter kerosens, for example, that are known to inhabit more densely packed areas of streams and stuff filled with leaves or very specific areas like leaf litter zones. You can create really unique and really engaging displays in which the fishes won't immediately be evident to the observer. And that's pretty cool. Just like with the jungle planted tanks that I adored when I was a kid, the densely stocked botanical style aquarium encourages the observer to take the time to linger and sort of discover the fishes, you know, flitting in and out of the hardscape. It's really cool. Like in any botanical material, uh, any botanical aquarium, excuse me, a more densely packed one will require thoughtful but not excessive maintenance. You simply need to feed carefully, stock thoughtfully, and adhere to the typical tenets of aquarium keeping. Nothing really new. There's very little that's actually more difficult to manage about this type of tank than any other when you understand its dynamics. And a more densely packed tank will just find its way. 
like any other natural botanical style aquarium, developing over time into this, you know, intriguing and engaging display that'll be constantly evolving, highly, you know, exciting and oddly refreshing. It's kind of weird when you see something that's a little different. The appeal of this interesting aesthetic and the practical benefits may or may not be immediately obvious to you. However, I encourage you to consider an aquatic habitat like this as a subject for your next aquarium project. The good news is that if you find yourself aesthetically just bored by this or you just hate it, you like a more open scape or whatever, you just remove some wood botanicals to hit that look that appeals to you. Even that in itself is not unlike the natural process of current tidal movements, etc., which rearrange stuff all the time in wild aquatic ecosystems, right? In the end, turning again to the incredible, almost infinite portfolio of inspiration that nature provides seems to always steer you in the right direction. If you look at enough natural aquatic ecosystems, you'll no doubt be struck by some habitat that speaks to you, something that motivates you to replicate it in some way and to share your work with others. With all these precious natural environments subject to so many dangerous external forces and perils, perhaps one of the most significant steps we can take to preserve them is to help others appreciate them by modeling an aquarium after them. And that may mean embracing more unorthodox aesthetics. Look and, 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 and consider exactly what it is that makes these habitats so successful. You'll likely find that so much of what makes these ecosystems operate so successfully starts with the bottom. Yeah, that means the substrate and the accompanying topography of the benthic habitat. Something we've talked about here before, but think about it again. Stream and river composition is affected by things like regional weather, current geology, the surrounding dry lands, and a host of other factors, all of which could make planning your next aquarium even more interesting if you take them into consideration. We've touched on these in some recent posts, and we'll definitely dive deeper in upcoming blogs and podcasts, I'm sure. There's much to this habitat, much more to it than just the accumulation of leaves and stuff. It's pretty interesting. If we focus on shallow tributaries of streams and flooded forest floors, it's important to note that the volume of water entering a stream helps in part to determine the amount and size of sediment, particles, leaves, you know, branches, seed pods, and all that stuff that can be carried along and thus comprise the substrate and its contours. This mixing of materials not only looks interesting, it's a reflection of the diversity and the vibrancy of the underwater environment. Now, one of the things you notice in a lot of these images of natural underwater substrates is that they're usually anything but squeaky clean, ultra white sand. Some places are, sure. Many aren't. Many are often sediment filled, covered with stringy fungal growths, biofilms, a spot or two of algae, some leaves. There's a fair amount of detritus accumulating in the substrate materials. As you know, detritus is not the enemy that we've made it out to be. Rather, it's a source of food for many aquatic animals, helping to literally power the ecosystem in which they're present. This is something we can and should absolutely replicate in our aquariums. Don't be afraid of sediments and even detritus accumulating on top of your leaves and botanicals. It's exactly what you see in nature, and our fishes are ecologically adapted to live in such habitats. In nature, the composition of bottom materials and the depth of the channel the, where the water flows through are always changing in response to the flow in a given stream. That affects the composition and the ecology in many ways. Some of these changes are actually the result of the fishes working them. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote from our friend Mike Tucanardi, who's studied many of these environments in person. And he says, One of the things that's most striking when you spend time below the water's surface in this sort of environment is that the fishes aren't just passive inhabitants. They're actively involved with their habitat, interacting in a very particular way. Epistogramma species aren't just hanging out. They're fighting turf wars among piles of dense leaf litter, even making their own piles by moving leaves and other bits of detritus to the center of their territories. 
Suckermouth catfish, whether Farawella or Ancestris, are actively exploring recently submerged branches and roots, looking for a rich patch of biofilm or algae to feast on. Earth eaters and many other species of cichlids, even severums, angelfish, and discus, are patrolling the bottom, taking big mouthfuls of sand and organic material to sift out any tasty morsels. It's a big organic mess, literally made up of various botanicals, and these fish are having a field day in it. So yeah, these dynamic habitats are not difficult to replicate in the aquarium. We need to understand that they play a functional and aesthetic role in the overall aquarium and how important they are to the life cycle of our fishes. And as we've touched on many, many times before here, that's the whole ballgame. Realizing that placing leaves and botanical materials on the bottom of the aquarium is not simply making an aesthetic statement. Rather, it's an homage to the function of the dynamic habitats that we love so much. Yet there's plenty of room for creativity, of course. The natural beauty of recreating these little slices of the bottom in our aquarium, embracing function over simple aesthetics, may just motivate aquarists and non-aquarists alike to take a greater interest in helping preserve and protect these precious natural ecosystems. And that's the biggest win of all. Remember, replicating natural aquatic habitats in form and functions is not a style or a trend in the aquarium world. Nature isn't exactly a fad or a trend follower, right? I mean, she's been doing this stuff for eons. We're just sort of catching up and beginning to study, contemplate, and appreciating what happens when form meets function in the aquarium, meeting nature where it really is. It just happens to look kind of cool. And that's pretty exciting, isn't it? I think that it is. <laughs> stay engaged. Stay curious. Stay dedicated. Stay observant. Stay open-minded. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tenant Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.